Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before your presence today and Lord, as we have seen yesterday and still remaining on the ground today, there is snow and it blankets with white brilliance creation. We see it as in a pure form. And Father, we rejoice that it is through the crimson blood of Christ that we are washed and we come forth whiter than snow. That our sins, though they are many, are cast as far as the east is from the west. That through the blood of Christ, the eternal Lamb of God, we who have turned to Him in faith, to the One who never says no to those who come to Him, we are cleansed from all our sin. And so now as we pray to You this morning, Father, our prayers are accepted not on our own merits, but on Christ's merits. And Father, You look and You see not our sin any longer. You see Christ. And that changes and transforms us completely. So Lord, today as we look to Your Word, may that grace that You have given to us to bring us to faith in Christ, may that grace continue to work within us, molding, shaping, and transforming us into the image of Your Son. We pray all this in Christ's precious name, pleading His blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah chapter 3. We've taken a little break from our study of the last four prophets as we went through the Christmas season. And now we're coming to the end of Zephaniah's prophecy. And again, as we've seen, Zephaniah is a prophet of wrath and rejoicing. And most of what we have seen throughout our study up until this point has been a focus on the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the the way in which God deals with sinners. But as we come to our passage days, we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 13. We now begin to see a significant shift in Zephaniah's prophecy. Again, the chapters that we have seen so far are terrifying. We saw in chapter 1 that God speaks of sacrificing, not a sacrifice instead of the sinner, but the sinner himself. In fact, if we were to look at chapter 1, verse 17, we see the, the, the intensity of God's judgment on sin as He brings distress on man, mankind so that mankind walks like the blind because they've sinned against the Lord. That God will pour out their blood like dust and their flesh like dung. And throughout These first two chapters and and the first part of chapter 3, Zephaniah has indicted both the nations in general that have rebelled against God and have sought idolatry and his own people 
as his own people have fallen into this idolatry. And so there is a bit of an anticipation in verse 8 of chapter 3. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. And we might be expecting at this junction for the climax of the wrath of God to be described in what Zephaniah says. But we see something surprising. We see something surprising. One of my favorite authors is a British brilliant man named C.S. Lewis. Many of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis. Lewis is most probably well-known for his children's books. He wrote The Chronicles of Narnia, and I grew up reading those books. I remember as a kid going into my closet and and hoping that I'm going to end up in Narnia, which never happened, um, much to my chagrin. But Lewis was also well-known for a book that is based off of a series of radio addresses he gave called Mere Christianity. And in that book, he that details and describes why Christianity has a rational basis for faith and why Christianity should be the thing that people look to, particularly as World War II is raging around them. Now, Lewis was not always a staunch defender of the faith. In fact, as he continued in academia, as he began his career as a professor, he was an avowed atheist someone who was a hater and a rebel to the things of the Lord. But later on in his life, he writes a book. And that book is called Surprised by Joy. And what he describes in that book is his conversion to Christianity as he comes from an atheist to a theist, someone who believes in God, and then from just being a theist to someone who sees hope in Christ alone. And for him, it was a surprise. Now, in that book, he recounts how he had been seeking joy and happiness and all sorts of different things and and how those things had never satisfied. And the only thing that ultimately satisfies him is Christ. But in also similar thinking about this surprise, we might think that someone who spent a large portion of his life in rebellion to God, that what we would expect for him to receive is the judgment of God. But yet, Lewis describes how he finds hope in the Redeemer and how that becomes his source of joy. Zephaniah surprises us in this passage. And in fact, what Zephaniah does is he reminds us throughout this book so far that God's justice calls for his wrath on sinners. But when we see the turn here in verse 9, what we are reminded of is that God does not deal with us according to our sins. As the psalmist says in Psalm 103, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide. He does he, he, uh, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. 
And so while Zephaniah reminds us of this in these verses, it is also a recognition that instead of dealing with us according to his wrath, he rather deals with us according to his grace, which transforms us. So what we're going to see here today, what we should consider as we walk out these doors this morning, is that we must seek that transformation by God's grace as we look at God's transforming grace. Look with me in Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 9 through 13. For at that time I will change the speech of the people's to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice. And speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. What an amazing passage of hope and comfort to a rebellious people. And so there's three things I'd like us to consider this morning about this transforming grace. Um, Lord willing, we'll get through them all. We'll see how it goes. Lots to cover here. The first thing we see is that transforming grace is a sovereign act. Transforming grace is a sovereign act. And this begins with recognizing, first of all, that our actions only bring condemnation. When we look to ourselves to be the ones that redeem ourselves, we only bring about further heaping upon ourselves judgment. In verses 6 and 7 of chapter 3, we have this this sort of stark contrast. God describes in verse 6 how He has displayed His magnificent power to the nations. He cuts them off. Their strong battlements are left in ruins. He lays waste to their streets so that no one walks in them. He empties the great cities. They've been made desolate, Zephaniah says, without a man, without an inhabitant. And so God's conclusion in verse 7 is, I said, surely at this point you will fear me. Surely as you see my power, my wrath unleashed upon the nations, you will accept correction. And then your dwelling will not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But how does Israel respond when they look to themselves in their own responses instead of looking and returning, repenting from their sin and turning to the Lord? It says all the more they were eager to make their deeds corrupt. The response 
of Israel to God's correction shows their hardness of heart. God presses Israel deeply with intense discipline. And when they look within themselves, when they seek to muster and respond by themselves to God's discipline, rather than it bringing relief and salvation, it only brings further corruption and sinful actions. The psalmist recounts this particularly in regards to Israel in Psalm 78. Psalm 78 is a, is a passage where the psalmist warns Israel that they're to listen to the words of the Lord and follow his commandments. And then what he does is he recounts Israel's history. And how does Israel do in listening to the Lord? Not good. Psalm 78, he sets the tone. He says, I'm giving this so that you should set your hope not in your actions, but where? In God. And then not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments, that they should not be like their fathers. And their fathers were what? A stubborn and rebellious generation. A generation whose heart heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. And then there is the recounting of what this is. In verse 17, they sinned still more against Him, rebelling against Him in the desert. Remember, God has delivered them from Egypt with amazing, powerful displays. And what do they do in the wilderness? Complain. As God shows His grace to them over and over again, in spite of all this, they, when they acted, still sinned. Despite His wonders. What did they do? They did not believe. In verse 40 and 42, they see the mighty power of God against the Egyptians seen and how often they rebelled against Him in the wilderness and grieved Him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember His power on the day when He redeemed them from the foe. And then we look forward and we see, okay, well, well, God drives out the nations out of Canaan, giving Israel the promised land. Surely such a magnificent act of grace will garner from Israel repentance and obedience to the Lord. But no! He brought them to the Holy Land, the mountain which His right hand had won, drove out the nations before them, apportioned them for a possession. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God. They did not keep his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously. Like their fathers, they twisted like a deceitful bow. And the imagery there is stark of of taking a a bow that, that, that is supposed to be straight so that the arrow flies straight. And when it's twisted, the arrow goes all sorts of different ways instead of the way it's meant to go. And so... Over and over again in this psalm, we see God acts to bring about salvation. God's actions are to be Israel's hope. But rather, when they turn to themselves and look to their actions, it does not bring hope. It brings further condemnation. And so the psalm ends with hope. 
Because what God does is instead of looking to Israel to save themselves, instead of saying that I'm going to set before you my law, I'm going to set before you my promises, and you're going to work your way into those things, what he does is he rejects the tent of David or Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim. He chose the tribe of Judah. Where Jerusalem is, Mount Zion, which he loves. He builds his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth which he's founded forever. He chooses David, his servant. The one he took from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes. And he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people. Israel, his inheritance. With an upright heart. He shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. And of course, David spoken of here does refer to the historical king of Israel, but there is a greater David that looks forward to coming. Jesus, our king. And the hope that Israel places for salvation is in what he does as he is the one that Ezekiel speaks of, of being set up as a servant over his people, the one who feeds them, the one who shepherds them, the one who brings them back into this covenant relationship where Yahweh is their God and their servant David will be prince among them. And then he guarantees this, I, the Lord, have spoken. When God says something is going to come about, you can take that to the bank. And so, Zephaniah begins this passage by pointing to the fact that God is the one who must act because our actions only bring about further condemnation. And the reality of the world in which we live is that every other religious system apart from the Bible gospel tells you you must save yourself. You must act. You must work harder. You must change to be a better person. And what Zephaniah shows us, what Ezekiel shows us, what David and the psalmist shows us, is that when we look to ourselves, there is no hope for salvation. But God's action brings hope. Look again at the first verse here. For at that time... Who is the one who's acting in verse 9? Yahweh, I will change the speech of the peoples. In fact, this passage points to the hope that is found not in Israel's actions, but in what God does. Verse 9, I will change. Verse 11, I will remove. Verse 12, I will leave. And it is an indication that salvation and restoration and hope comes not from ourselves, but from God who acts from His grace. So when we see hope for rebels, it is not in the rebels themselves. It is in the God who changes rebels to be His people. That is where we find salvation. And that is where Zephaniah points us to find our hope. That is where Zephaniah points a rebellious nation. And again, remember the background of this. Zephaniah is prophesying during the revival of Josiah. And so 
whether this is before that, that revival or whether it is a reminder for Israel in the midst of revival to keep before them these principles, the reality is whether we see and feel a change going on radically in us or whether we're living in sin, the answer is always the same. Turn to Christ. He is the one who you should hope in. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. God is the one who brings hope. So God, our actions only bring condemnation. God's action brings hope. But this grace that brings hope does not leave us where we are. We're talking about grace that is transforming. And what we see is we see now Zephaniah describing the hope that's found in God's actions and the effect that those actions have upon us as we see transforming grace cleanses us. We see, first of all, that we are made pure. Look at what he says again in verse 9. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. First thing God seeks to do here is to cleanse His people. Now, it's interesting Zephaniah, and we don't really get it in the English here, but Zephaniah chooses a, your, a word for I will change. He chooses a word that is generally used in response to conquering, overthrowing, or bringing about judgment. Turning or overthrowing. And so this word change really has the idea of conquering. I will conquer. I will turn over. Now, it's surprising here that when this verb is used, it's meant to be stark because every other section of this, of this book, except for a few little places here and there, when we see God acting, and particularly when he acts in a way to overthrow something, it's overthrowing sinners. But here, he's not overthrowing the sinner. Rather, he's overthrowing one particular point of the sinner, and that is his speech. I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. Now this term speech here, it actually literally means lip. I will change the lip of the peoples to a pure lip. Zephaniah again focuses here on something that, that should echo back all the way to Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis chapter 11, verse 1, we have the account of Babel. In Babel, we had a united people, a united world. And this whole world was united because they had one lip, literally. One language or one lip. And they spoke uniformly. There was unity over what they said. Now, what did they use that lip to do? And we see it in verse 4. They said, come... Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for who? Ourselves. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. There's a very clear indication here about what this rebellion brought about among those that had babbled. They had a 
defiled lip. And that defiled lip spoke towards rebellious actions where they sought not the prestige and honor and glory of their creator God, but rather they said, I will make a name for myself. And so, at that time, how does God act? He changes the lip of all people, confuses their language so that they can't communicate and it causes a division and they're scattered over all the earth. But what we find here is surprising because we have the same people who are living to make themselves known, who are living for themselves, who are, who are even seeing the judgment of God and instead of repenting and turning to Him, they make their, their deeds all the more corrupt. And so God comes, and He comes as a conquering king. But He doesn't come to conquer and destroy them. Rather, He comes to conquer and destroy the sin within them. As He changes and purifies their lips. And there's a wonderful hope that when this happens, we shed our shame. Notice again what He says in verse 11. On that day, on the day when God acts to change and purify the lips of the people, you shall not be put to shame. A purified lip, a lip that does not bring shame, a mouth and words that speak to the glory of Christ and encourage other people does not come from a sinful heart. It comes from a purified, changed heart by God's grace. As Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, the good person acts out of the good treasure of his heart. And that produces good, but the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, guess what speaks? The mouth. So this focus on the lips shows us that God is changing not just merely the words and the language of the people, but He is changing their hearts so that their language would be transformed. And as a result of that, they're able to shed their shame before Him. Isaiah illustrates this beautifully in Isaiah chapter 6. We know Isaiah 6 well. It's one of the most well-known passages of Scripture. God is seen in His temple. There are seraphim flying around, praising the thrice holy God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. There is thunder and there is the smoke that's filling the temple. And it is a fearful thing. And Isaiah looks and he says, I am ruined. Why? For I am a man of what? Unclean lips. And I dwell in the presence of a people with unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the glory of the Lord. 
Isaiah at that moment recognizes that in and of himself, all he can bring before God, any word he were to say, any argument he were to make, anything he were to do is tainted by the sin that dwells within. And as he comes before a holy and a righteous God, he is ruined. But then there's this beautiful scene where in Isaiah 6, one of the seraphim flies to him. And the seraphim beforehand had gone to the altar and with a tong had taken one of the coals. And he takes that coal to Isaiah. And what does he do with it? He touches his what? His mouth. And he says, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. What a wonderful image of the salvation that comes through the sacrifice that God accepts. Not a sacrifice of the blood of bulls and goats, but a sacrifice of the eternal Lamb of God. And that coal touching the lips of Isaiah cleanses him completely. And so what's the response of Isaiah? God now speaking to all that are arrayed there in heaven. He asked this question, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah, who before could only speak of his destruction, could only speak of shame before the holy God, he says, Here am I. Send me. You realize that at that moment he has shed completely the shame of sin that resided upon him because of his sinful lips. He's been cleansed and purified. And so the people whom the Lord sovereignly saves through his action have their sin and their guilt removed. We no longer stand before God as people of unclean lips, but we stand before Him as a people whose lips have been changed to produce pure speech. And then we see how that action changes our, us completely. That grace of God that brings about the purification of our lips and brings about the transformation of us begins to change us from the inside out. And the first thing we see is that inside our desires are changed. Remember in Babel? Let us make a name for ourselves. That was what proceeded from corrupted lips. Here in Zephaniah, what do they say? Look at verse 9. After God cleanses their lips... He does this so that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord. He changes what they seek in their desire so that now, no longer desiring themselves, they desire Him more than anything else. And they call upon Him. And that change is remarkable here a people who were eager to make their deeds more sinful are now a people by God's sovereign grace impacting them that now what they are eager to do is to bless the name of the Lord and to call upon Him. 
Now, let's be honest. We struggle with this reality today. James points to this, that there are, as he describes the, the tongue, which is a member set on fire from hell. And the point he makes as he finishes that all is, listen, you speak from your hearts. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? No. And yet the disconnect among Christians that James points to is with the same mouth, we bless the Lord, and what do we end up doing? Cursing our neighbor. What's wrong with us? Can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? No. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. And James' point is what's inside is going to come out of you. And so what God is pointing to here as He speaks to His people and He cleanses their lips is that their speech is changed because their desires are changed. This is where we see Paul in Romans 10 describing what happens at conversion. He says, in Romans chapter 10, quoting from Deuteronomy, what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and where? In your where? Heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then he describes this interaction between the heart and the mouth. The mouth with the heart, we believe, we desire. With the mouth, confession is made. And we are saved. And then notice what is, comes about from that transformation. As our desires are changed, there's a scripture that says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to what? Shame. And so as our desires are changed by God's grace, so our mouths speak differently because we call not upon the things that bring us delight. We live not for our glory. We live not for our prestige. We live because we're dependent on the name of the Lord. The first evidence of God's sovereign grace changing a person's heart is that their once sullied, filthy lips cry out to Him in faith. That comes from a desire for him. But not only are our desires changed, our attitudes are changed. Our attitudes are changed. Notice what he says in verse 11. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst the proudly exultant ones. And you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. Instead, I'll leave in your midst a people who are what? Humble and lowly. When we cry out to the Lord, it requires at, its mo- at the most fundamental level an act of humility. Saying, I can't save myself. I can't do this. Only you can. It strips our souls of pride 
We have nothing to offer before the Lord. If we stand before the Lord with our filthy lips, there is only one response, and it's the response that Isaiah gives. We're ruined. But as God's grace impacts our lives, our attitudes are now changed, and we no longer live for self. We live for Christ. We're no longer proud. We're no longer exalting ourselves. And and the, the folly of that attitude is alluded to in what he says in verse 11. I'm going to remove the, the proudly exultant ones. You'll no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. Do you understand the audacity of humanity to stand in God's place and to promote themselves? That's what God is saying. He says, I'm changing that so that you'll no longer live for yourself but you'll live for my glory. Boy, we need to catch this in our day and age, don't we? We all so easily fall into pride, living for ourselves, promoting ourselves. I think we need to really evaluate this as we come together as God's people. You you know, one of the dangers of coming together as God's people is that even here, we can be about promoting ourselves. Why are you here today? Are you here so that people will see you? Are you here so that that you've checked off that box and somebody won't think badly of you, so that someone will think well of you? Are you here to make feel good about yourself? If our primary focus here is for us, then we'll get upset when the focus is not on us. So-and-so didn't talk to me. Pastor didn't say this to me. And we're completely living for ourselves. God's grace comes to change that about us so that we no longer live for ourselves. We live for Him. So that we come on Sunday so that he may be known, that we may know him more and that we may make him known to others. Would that that would be the focus of our conversations after the service or before the service. Would that that would be the conversation and the focus of what we speak of outside of this place. That Christ would be preeminent. Because God's grace has captivated us so that we seek His glory, not our own. There's a hymn that I grew up listening to, um, modern hymn, probably one that's not that familiar. Some of us who grew up here were familiar with it. It was written by Bob Coughlin of Sovereign Grace Music, but it was sung by an a cappella group that we used to listen to a lot, a lot Glad. And it was on their a cappella worship album. And the last hymn on that album was a hymn called More of You. The words go like this. I'm, not, I'm going to spare you from having me sing it. More of you, less of me. Oh, my Father, I want to be a spotless vessel so that all can see more of you and less of me. What can I offer you 
when the very best that I do is marked by the stain of my sin, my weakness only proves that though I might be used, your grace is the power within me. Though in my heart I plan to follow your commands, sin is still waging its war. But you have done your part. You redeemed my wayward heart. Now cause it to shine with your glory. O Lord, more of you and less of me. O my Father, I want to be a spotless vessel so that all can see more of you, less of me. This is the attitude of someone who is captured by the grace of God. It is o- we have to realize it is only by God's grace that we get beyond ourselves. We live in a world that is set up to promote yourself. Everything in our world seeks to cater to you. Social media is, is set up in its technology to cater to you so that you see the things you want to see. God's grace changes us so that it's not about us. It's about Him. God removes our pride, our haughtiness, and He creates within us a desire so that we would be humble and lowly, that we would seek His glory above our own. Our desires are changed. Our attitudes are changed. Thirdly, our actions are changed. Throughout this passage, there are, there are changes seen by the grace of God. And I want us to be abundantly clear here. Our actions do not save us. God is the one who acts. But when God acts, it will have a definite effect on our actions so that we will be different. That's why we speak of God's grace as that which transforms us. We see it in verse 10 that there is now heartfelt worship to the Lord. Verse 10, notice what he says, From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. Throughout this book, there has been nothing but offering and idolatry going on to other gods. And now as God's grace impacts His people, they come and worship Him. And this worship is not just simply limited to Israel, but He speaks of beyond the rivers of Cush, beyond the southernmost border of Ethiopia, the most significant nations of the time at that day. God's grace extends to all the world. And God takes rebels, those who worship idols, and turns them by His grace into those who Worship Him. Coming before Him and seeking His glory. Not only is there worship, but there is service to the Lord. We see this at the end of verse 9. Notice how these two things are put together. That as we call upon the name of the Lord, our purified lips bring us to call upon the name of the Lord. Now we also serve Him with one accord. The idea there of one accord 
has, has the idea of standing shoulder to shoulder with each other as we serve our king. And so we come before him with worship. We come before him with service. We also are seeking to do righteous deeds. If you notice what he says again in verse 13, those who are left in Israel, the ones that have been transformed by God's grace, they shall do no injustice and not speak lies, and there shall, be found in their, there shall not be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. One of the problems that Zephaniah pointed to throughout this passage is that there was injustice being done, that, that the ruling elite and the religious elite were exploiting the people unjustly. But when God's grace impacts us, we no longer seek to get one up on somebody. We no longer seek to use people for our advantage. Rather, we seek to be an advantage for them. We we no longer live for ourselves. We live for Christ, and we love those whom Christ loves. And so we turn back from our injustice, and the final thing we see him pointing to is that we are truthful. They speak no lies and there shall not be found in their mouth behind those new purified lips a deceitful tongue. We live in a world that is filled with dishonesty. Imagine the transformation that would happen if Christians just started living upright, honest lives in all of their interactions. Imagine how marriages could be healed if we're just honest with each other. Imagine how workplaces could be transformed through honesty. We speak the truth lovingly, but we speak the truth. Because it's not about us. It's about the prestige and glory of our Lord. And so as God comes and changes and cleanses these people, he changes their desires, he changes their attitudes, he changes their actions, and then as a result of God's work, there is a changed outlook to life. Look at the end of verse 13. God doing all of this promises that they shall graze and lie down, and none, none, shall make them afraid. What a change from what we saw in the beginning chapters and the majority of this book. When we read in verse 8, Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I, when I rise to seize the prey, that should terrify us. God is going to stand up and he, he is going to come and, and he has already spoken of how he's spilling the blood of his enemies like dung on the ground. But the joy and the surprise of it all is that in his grace, when he rises to stand up to seize the prey, he seizes the prey of our sinful hearts and by his grace changes us so that now we're sheep that follow the good shepherd. 
The one who David speaks of in Psalm 23 as his shepherd. The one who makes it so that he shall not want. This good shepherd makes us to lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside still waters. He restores our soul. He leads us in the path of righteousness. And notice, for whose namesake? His namesake. And even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil because He's with us. His rod and His staff, they comfort us. In fact, the imagery here is expansive. As Zephaniah has alluded to Babel, where humanity is united in rebellion against God and it only brings about their scattering on the earth. So this is a, almost a reversing of the order of humanity up until that point as he brings them back into a luscious garden where we come into the Edenic state. And all the mess, all the damage that our sin has done in this world, God wipes away by His grace. So that now we can come and not fear anything. This is the grace of God. It is transforming grace. It changes us, purifying our lips. It changes our, our desires, our attitudes, our actions. Do you know this grace? Zephaniah, we are now beginning to see, is a prophet of joy, of great joy. Maybe you're here today and, and you haven't had a lot of joy in your life. And it's because you, like Lewis, before he came to embrace the gospel, sought joy in all the wrong things. Your career, your riches, your comfort, your actions. You Maybe you're here today and you've been living for yourself. God's grace is given in Christ to change you, to transform you, so that you would live for him. And that brings great joy because he becomes the great joy of our lives. May this truly break up our fallow ground.